We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Fino. We've got a great show for you today, as always, I hope. In this half hour of the show, we'll be speaking with author Christopher Gorham, who's written a book called The Confident, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. Doesn't get much better than that. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking about the portion of Taruma. We may actually be talking a little bit about Adar, as this is the month that Purim falls in. Somebody will throw in some Purim stuff. We do have a Purim-esque story at the end of the show. Jewish music throughout. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. Israel's Iron Dome intercepted rockets fired from Gaza. The attack came after the terror attack in Jerusalem that claimed the lives of three people, including two brothers aged eight and six. IDF jets struck an underground Hamas complex used for making rockets in central Gaza. One of the Israeli teams dispatched to Turkey to assist after the devastating earthquakes there has headed home after being informed of a concrete and immediate threat against them. This is when they're, like, helping save Turks, like, hello. An Israeli border police officer was killed by a Palestinian teen who stabbed him on a bus in East Jerusalem. Police arrested a 14-year-old Palestinian after he attacked a 17-year-old boy in Jerusalem's old city. Israel's Knesset passed the law 94 to 10 that any Israeli citizen or resident who is convicted of terrorist charge and receives financial support from the Palestinian Authority will lose their citizenship and be deported to either with the West Bank or Gaza. Two Jewish men in Los Angeles were shot in separate incidents as they left their synagogues following morning prayers. Police arrested one man and are treating the shootings as hate crimes. 
the victims are in stable condition. Anti-Semitic messages were projected on the facade of the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. The messages said that the famed diary is a fake, a common slogan amongst Holocaust deniers. Several buildings at Camp B'nai B'rith near Ottawa were destroyed by a fire. Police are calling it arson, but have not yet listed as a hate crime. And finally, the oldest Hebrew Bible, known as the Sassoon Codex, will be auctioned off at Sotheby's this spring. The book was written over a thousand years ago and is estimated to sell for as high as $50 million. Maybe we'll get this person on the show, the Sotheby's representative. We always do that. Do it once in a while anyway. That's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Friedman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's get things started with a little bit of music. This is Mendy Hershkowitz. The song is called The Car of Mamish, which generally means Mashiach is right around the corner.
how about to make a music video? And that was Mandy Hirschwitz singing Bekar of Mamish, speedily in our day. We have on the line Mr. Christopher Garham, who has authored the book The Confident, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. How are you today, Christopher? I'm doing very well, Rabbi Finman. How are you? Good. Thank God. Thank you for asking. Thank you for taking up some time. Okay. So, people, when one of the objectives that people have when they write a book is they want to sell the book and they want to sell as many copies as possible. So, therefore, they pick a topic that everybody knows about and wants to hear about. But you have, you have picked a topic about a, a person that no one has ever heard about. In fact, that's the reason probably why you wrote the book is because nobody ever heard about it. So, what was your impetus about writing your, your, the book, The Confident? Well, all, all credit to my agent. You know, I would, I'm unknown off with an unknown topic. Um, the impetus, uh, hopefully that'll change, but the impetus was uh, I'm a high school history teacher, and I had seen a picture of Anna Rosenberg, who's a striking-looking woman, with uh, President Harry Truman, and the caption said, Assistant Secretary of Defense Anna Rosenberg. And I thought, you know, I've heard of and seen pictures of Frances Perkins, obviously Eleanor Roosevelt and others, but I've never heard of her before, and that seems like a pretty high-up position in the government. So I put Anna Rosenberg on my list of topics for students to, to do their research papers on, and a couple of students took her uh, as the topic. They looked for books. They came back to me, Mr. Gorm, we can't find anything. So we realized that her papers were actually at the Harvard University Library, which is only about 20 miles from the school. So my wife and I met this group of students one day in April of 2019, and they wheeled out the boxes of Anna Rosenberg's papers, and we put on the, the white gloves and started digging in. One of my kids said, Mr. Gorham, come over here and take a look at this. And Rabbi Finman, there were letters from, handwritten letters from President Truman, from Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson, just on and on. It was like a roll call of history. And I thought right then and there um, that I'll be the one to write the book. Okay, very interesting. So what did, what did you find out about Anna? You know, uh, sec Assistant Secretary of Defense is, as you said, that's a pretty high uh, position. Somebody like that has access to, you know, the big, the, uh, the sexy topic is now is confidential uh, papers marked classified. She had some access to some classified information. What sure. was it? What tell us about her and how she got into that position, please? She is kind of like uh, if you know the character Zelig or Forrest Gump. I mean, as I was researching, she was just 
these pivot points of history one after another, you know, from suffrage to, you know, the, 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 the American entry into World War I. I mean, she was active even as a teenager and into her 20s. She meets, uh, in her 20s, she meets Ellen Roosevelt at a tea and sort of, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt says, uh, young lady, what do you do? And Anna Rosenberg says, you know, I, I'm a uh, public relations person and labor relations person. So Eleanor says, well, my husband's running for governor of New York, and he could use that expertise. So she's in the Roosevelt orbit, you know, as early as, you know, 1928, and until the end of his life in 1945, she is close to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And in terms of, you know, her sort of Forrest Gump, just kind of being at all these pivot points, um, she uh, was instrumental in getting uh, black Americans hired in the defense industries through Executive Order 8802, which I argue in the, the book that she may well have authored and was persuaded, persuaded the president to sign it. She was uh, instrumental in keeping the arsenal of democracy firing on all cylinders with her labor program that became a nationwide program for labor. She was sent over by Roosevelt to Europe just weeks after D-Day and crossed France with the troops. And what she learned over there really helped guide the GI Bill. Um, she was instrumental in keeping the secrecy of the atomic bomb program. So all of these things were sort of the first act. And then, of course, as you mentioned, um, you know, sort of the capstone of her career, the highest position she had was Assistant Secretary of Defense during the Korean War. That's that's pretty awesome. Okay, so let's go back. So now, was she involved with formulating the New Deal? She was, I would say, Frances Perkins is more, and rightfully considered more of helping to formulate the New Deal. What Anna did was, uh, at the street level, Anna Rosenberg, as regional director of New York State, obviously including New York City, um, regional director of the uh, NIRA, which was the the attempt to get business and industry back from the Great Depression, and then even more importantly, as the director of Social Security in New York, she was instrumental in getting it, rolling it out at the street level. So not so much formulating the the plan, but getting that plan into the hands of people. Six million New Yorkers were signed up through Social Security, and and she would have women say to her. Middle-aged women would say, don't tell my husband my real age. And she would have men say to her, you know, with my gray hair, don't tell my boss my real age because uh, I need that job. And she said to them, don't worry, uh, I'll keep your secrets, and Uncle Sam will too. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay. Okay, our guest today is Christopher Gorham. has written a book called The Confidence, the life story of Anna Rosenberg, who is the, uh, one of the women who says who shaped, helped shape Modern America. Now, modern America means 2023. What do you mean that she helped shake? She heard, heard she was basically done before Eisenhower. Well, yeah, well, she she continued to act as an unpaid advisor through the Johnson years. And uh, Lyndon, as president, they'd been friends since the 1930s when he first came to Congress. So she's shaping, helping shape policy behind the scenes all the way up until the, uh, I guess, early uh, or just about the dawn of the 70s. Um, with Johnson, it was getting women into into positions, um, cabinets, or not cabinet, but sub-cabinet and, and others. Um, in terms of shaping modern America, the, the biggest contribution she made was 
the educational thrust of the GI Bill. When they had passed the bill in June of 1944, they hadn't filled out, you know, legislation that size doesn't get fleshed out until later. Often it's, you know, the administrative state has to come in and sort of fill it all out. So they thought at the time, you know, vocational training is what these guys wanted, these millions of GIs that were then serving overseas. So Roosevelt, who could have and would have gone if he, if he would, was physically able, uh, much like he'd gone to World War I at the behest of President Wilson, sent Anna Rosenberg to Europe, like I said, just weeks after D-Day. She sees all the things that they saw, the death, the destruction, widows and orphans, and she talks to the men over a series of weeks, and she takes notes. And these guys wanted an education. They wanted to have a share in the country that they were helping to, to save. And when she got back and told Roosevelt, she said he just lit up because education is really what they want. They don't want job training so much as they want an opportunity to better themselves, to get that college education or go to grad school, become the dentist, the accountant with the lawyer, whatever, and have a, a chance at that American dream. And the, the subsequent changes to the GI Bill were all adding that educational thrust, and that was transformative in the post-war. Okay. Now, one of those things that she saw, she was a participant in, as she was in Europe uh, following World War II, was the post-liberation of the, of the concentration camps, which left a prou- uh, very profound effect on her as it would with anybody. But how did that then, her being there, like saying, it sounds like she was like the eyes and ears for Roosevelt. How did that, what did she do then that influenced Roosevelt as far as uh, post-Holocaust survivors? Roosevelt had sent her on the second mission. So in 1945, before he died, he had ordered her back to Europe to continue her work that she'd done in 1944. Roosevelt dies and Truman says, I'm going to continue this mission. You're going to go over to Europe. At that moment, uh, Patton, Eisenhower, and Omar Bradley, uh, they, they liberate – they see the first liberated concentration camp. And, you know, Eisenhower is white with anger, and he immediately cables and says, I want journalists, I want congresspeople, I want, I want people to bear witness to this. And Anna Rodenberg just so happens to, you know, be coming to Europe right at that moment. So she goes to um, – the Nordhausen concentration camp, which was just a, a, a hellacious place um, where they were building the, the V1 and V2 rockets, and sees the survivors. And like the generals, it made uh, an impression on her that um, she only I only found evidence of her talking about it once. So that should that I guess tells us all something about uh, that experience. But one of the first Allied women to see to bear witness to the concentration camps, absolutely. Okay. Oh, and let me continue on. Go ahead. The mission, <laughs> the mission was changed at that time. So once they're realizing in Washington what's going on, uh, Truman cabled Anna and said, you know, you're in Europe. I want you to go to Paris, and I want you to meet a couple of rabbis. You're going to be talking about the French Jews that were displaced because the millions of people were displaced and, and – uh, assailants and victims of the Holocaust were all sort of willy-nilly thrown together in these dis- these DP camps. So Anna Rosenberg said, "We can't have this. This is this is this is an outrage." So they were separated out by nationality and, and by religion, um, and that made a, an enormous difference. That really actually did because I did hear stories of 
a woman by the name of Emma Shaver. I don't know if you've ever come across her name. She's a she's a Detroit icon, and following World War II, she got permission. She was an opera singer to visit the DP camps and was allotted. They gave her a, 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 a U.S. Army major uniform just to stick on as she was driving around this yeah. American area, as they did with Anna Rosenberg also as well. And she described the various and different uh, DP camps that she went to, that this one was like this and this one was like this, and describing that they're separate, that there were the Poles and there were the Ukraines and there were the Jews and et cetera, et cetera. So a very instrumental thing. And she said that it really, it really was profound in doing that. So that's a major thing. I didn't know that she was, I just figured they were all, the Americans had enough sense to do that themselves, but good no, to hear. No, they, they, they didn't, and she was instrumental in making sure that that happened, and, and a good thing that it, that it did happen. Okay, so now I'm assuming that since she was involved with uh, FDR and Truman and Johnson, that she was more persuaded towards being a Democrat, but they, she had what to do if she was in Europe and, and with Dwight D. Eisenhower, so she had what to do with Eisenhower as well. What was she doing during his administration? She sure did, and and uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who was a four-term governor of New York and vice president under uh, Gerald Ford, a lifelong Republican, you know, one of the Rockefeller brothers, he, he said everything he amounted to in Washington he owed to Anna Rosenberg. So even going way back when to the 1930s, she was comfortable on uh, both sides of the aisle. She, Her second husband, Paul Hoffman, was uh, Republican, and together with Paul Hoffman, Anna was um, played a, a role in convincing General Eisenhower to come back and serve as president. Uh, in 1952, there was a there was a concern, I guess, with the Korean War that uh, a president, uh, Robert Taft from Ohio, with maybe a vice president in in the in the person of Douglas MacArthur, might be uh, immoderate, if if you would, you know, especially with the with the nuclear threat. So there were Democrats and, and Republicans alike, moderate Republicans alike, that saw Eisenhower as the right person, the right military hero to come back and serve as president. And Anna and, uh, and Paul Hoffman both worked together uh, to convince him, to convince Dwight Eisenhower to leave soldiering and become a statesman. Um, and he, he might have wanted to anyway, but, but it certainly helped that they were on his side. Um, so... Yes, she was comfortable with Republican uh, and Democrat alike um, throughout her career. Interesting. That's fascinating. Again, we're talking with Christopher Gorham, who's authored the book The Confident, The Life of Anna Rosenberg. Um, her name Rosenberg and the fact that her first husband was named Julius didn't exactly yes. help during the, McCarthy, no. during the McCarthy era. Could you talk about that, please, Christopher? Yes. Uh, by marriage, as you mentioned, Anna Letterer became Anna Rosenberg, and her husband was named Julius, as you pointed out. Uh, he went by Mike. She called him Mike. But in 1950, when Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were arrested, uh, Rosenbergs around the country were shunned. They lost friends. Uh, it was obviously unfair, but uh, just because of the, the similarity in, in surname. But for Anna, it was, I think it played a role in why she had been a famous person in the 40s, on the cover of magazines in the New York Times, um, reported on. She'd been on television programs in the 1950s and, again, in magazines and newspapers. And 
why she was sort of then became obscure in the decades after. Part of it is because of that last name. You know, she was serving in the Pentagon as a civilian woman, a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, you know, with the accent in the Pentagon at literally the same three years that the Rosenbergs were being tried and then executed for, for espionage. So that was part of why she didn't trumpet her own career. She was asked by Eleanor Roosevelt to see a biographer. She said no. She was asked by Edward R. Murrow, you know, who said, we have quite a book to write someday. And she said that'll be a book that will never be written. Um, but many decades later, it has been written. Okay. So did she go toe-to-toe with McCarthy, or he kind of just she was just like collateral damage? She didn't go face-to-face with McCarthy, but she went face-to-face with his agent. Uh, it was a man named Ralph DeSola who lived in New York, and Joe McCarthy in Washington and the radio, the right-wing radio star Fulton Lewis found Ralph DeSola, and he was going to testify that he had seen Anna Rosenberg at a communist meeting in the 1930s in New York. Well, Anna gets the New York City phone book, and there's 47 Anna Rosenbergs in New York City, which is, you know, like a name like Joe Smith in New York. So um, when she went face-to-face with Ralph DeSola, uh, he tried to convince the senators that he recognized what she looked like, her voice, her, her stature from 20 years before, having only seen her once. And uh, you'll have to read the book, but I, I don't think the senators were very persuaded by that. So she was she got the better of, of Senator McCarthy, um, even though she didn't go head-to-head directly with him. That's cool. Okay, so people have, when they, when they sit down to write a, a book, they have a an end game, a goal, what they're trying to achieve, what they would want this book to be able to do, what the what the reader should come away with. What is it when you started it, and is it the same when you finished it? What is your what was your end game? What's your what would be the ideal for you that if somebody reads the confident that they should walk away with Christopher Gordon? Well, I think when I started, it was a desire to see this once famous woman who was so important to these uh, large chunks of American history in mid-century to see her return to historical discussion. Um, As I've finished the book, it's sort of the power of the citizen, the engaged citizen, whatever his or her politics, but the powerful of an engaged citizen who's willing to do the work uh, to better the country. And you don't one doesn't have to be at the forefront. You can do this behind the scenes. You know, you can. Uh, it doesn't have to be a woman. It doesn't have to be a man. Um, but if you're engaged, if you are willing to work hard, if you're willing to put some some skin in the game, you can you can move the needle and make the country a better place. And I think that she inspires. You know, she certainly inspires me. Her story, um, all the things that she helped do for America in the war and in, in the peacetime, is really an inspiration. I would. Also love, you know, to see her portrayed, not not a total biopic, but there is some very dramatic sections of the book, and the one with with Senator McCarthy is certainly probably the most dramatic, but I would love someday to, to, to go into the movie theater and see that on the big screen. <laughs> Who would you like to see played, Anna? Well, uh, Rabbi Finman, as, as a matter of fact, <laughs> um, I think Natalie Portman would be one uh, person, uh, Deborah Messing perhaps, or Bibi Newworth, so there's... Lots of wonderful actors out there that I think would, would find her inspiring, too. Okay, that's wonderful. Our guest has been 
Christopher Gorham, author of The Confident, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America, Anna Rosenberg. It's uh, published by Citadel Press, available where fine books, wherever you get your fine books from. Um, is there a sequel? Is another book coming out? Something else on your mind, uh, Christopher? There is. I have a uh, I have a, a fiction uh, project going and another nonfiction project going. So um, hopefully, I'll be able to say more after I share them with my agent. <laughs> okay, very good. Okay, we wish you continued success and thank you so much for coming on. Rabbi Finman, thanks for having me and thanks too to your listeners. Okay, take care. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herr Schulfen, and here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have up next is a little bit of a backstory why I am playing this piece. The next piece coming up is from Dave Tyrus. Dave Tyrus back in the 40s. Dave Tyrus was like um, saying Dave Tyrus back in the 40s among the Jewish population was like saying uh, Rihanna. It was, that's how big. Dave Tyrus was at the time, and he did a piece. He got some people together, some jazz musicians who were Jewish, and they understood uh, jazz, they understood klezmer, and they did this whole jazz fusion thing. It was, like, remarkable. As far as how many records did it sell, it did not go platinum, gold. Maybe they sold maybe 10,000 records. Who knows? It has always been sort of like the gold standard of Klezmer fusion music was this Dave Tyrus record. The For the first time in 40 years, there's going to be a concert in New York. I don't have the details of it. I'm not in New York. If you can look it up on your, you know, if you're in New York, listen to this. It's sometime this week. It's Dave Tyrus. Uh, somebody's doing the performance of Dave Tyrus, Tanz, T-A-N-Z. And we're going to listen to one piece of it. One of my favorites is actually Papa Royson, which Papa Royson means cigarettes which was one of the things, the, the words to it, which there are no words included, is all instrumental. The words are, is, um, I'm a little kid. It's like a, it's sung by like a 10-year-old, and I have no parents, and I have to make ends meet somehow, so I sell cigarettes on the street corner. That's, that's the kind of the words of it. And uh, let's listen. <laughs>
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shultzman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, this is brand new, hours old. Well, by the time you listen to it, I don't know how long in the future it is, but as we're playing it now, it's just hours old. This is God Elbaz. Everybody knows about him. And Nir Kapten, who I don't know anything about, Nir Kapten. And uh, they've done it, they made a collaboration, and it's called Lolavad, which means you're never alone. I'm 
גם אם ליבך רחוק מדי. אליי אוזניך קשובות, ומעיניי דמעות זולגות. תזכור לבניך Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-born infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. There's a lot going on in the Jewish calendar. We have the month of Adar beginning this week, which is the month in which Purim come, falls. And it says that when Adar enters, we increase in joy. We also have a remembrance of Passover coming up in that this past Saturday in the synagogue, we read what was called Parsha Shkullim which was a reminder to people that there is a census, which was done during temple times, right before Passover, so they would know what kind of population there would be possibly coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And this way they replenished the temple coffers with 50-cent pieces, lots of 50-cent pieces. And it's also the portion of Teruma. And so... If they're all happening simultaneously, the rule is, therefore, that they must be interconnected one with the other. And in the time allotted me, let's see if we can do that. The portion starts out, make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. This is following the golden calf. The golden calf isn't talked about for another two weeks. So, But there's, we've talked about that there's no chronology in the Torah because the Torah is not a history book. It's a lesson book, and lessons are conveyed as needed. So we're told at the onset before the golden calf that the Almighty wants to dwell within each and every single one of us. And that is done... In great detail, the portion delineates in tremendous detail how to go about building this sanctuary. The foundation, the boards, the coverings, the items that were used inside. And since it is that that sanctuary, there's a lot of space devoted to it in the book of Exodus. And since that sanctuary was really pretty much only used for about 44 years, no, 54 years, the 40 years that they were in the desert, and actually it was only 39 because the first year they didn't need it. It was before the golden calf. No, yeah, it was, it was uh, after the golden calf. 
but it wasn't until like the following year that this thing actually went into work. So it was only 39 years in the desert, and then the 14 years while Joshua was conquering the land, they still used it. So it didn't occupy a tremendous amount of time in Jewish history, but it occupies a tremendous amount of place in the Bible, indicating that it wasn't just talking about a an edifice which was removable with attractable roofs and et cetera, et cetera, but rather referring to our own persona. And indeed, each part, each facet, each detail of the sanctuary refers to some part of us. I'm talking about personality. I could spend a week just on, devote many shows just on that topic and have in teaching the portion in my, some of my Parsha classes have explained exactly that, what each item represents. The main focus of the sanctuary, of course, was the Holy Ark, which had in it the tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai. And that represents our hearts. That's like the, the quintessential who we are. That's like the focal point in the sanctuary. That's our focal point of who we are in our relationship to God as well. That We don't have it now. Jeremiah went and he hid it. But that doesn't mean that it's not around someplace. It's around somewhere. It's still doing whatever the ark did, which they didn't use it for any part of the service. On Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in a couple times and put some incense down and talk to God around it. So, But the ark was just doing what it was doing. It was just sitting there being an ark. So wherever it is now, it's just sitting being an ark, which is an indication that even though we Jews are in exile, we have that, that connection. We're still maintaining that connection with our essence, which is connected to God. Comes along now Parsha Shkullin. Which, what's Parsha Shkullin? Parsha Shkullin says that God wants us to count the Jewish people. Not that God needs to know who, how many Jews there are, but that we should know that in the eyes of the Almighty, we are important enough to count. What things do you count? You don't know how much trash you have in your trash can. Unless it was just, it was garbage day was yesterday, in which case you know there's none. But trash is thrown away. You don't care about it. You're not counting it. Things of insignificance, things of no value, don't get counted. Only things that are counted are things that are worth something. So the Almighty instructed the Jewish people, you're worth something. And I want you to count, not once every 10 years like we do in America. I want you to count yourself every year. And indeed, in Israel, they do have a census every year, except they do it before Rosh Hashanah. But then it's only it's a, it's a lot smaller. It's 10 million, 10 million people as opposed to, say, 330 million people. So a lot easier to do every year. That'd be like the state of Michigan count, have, doing a census. You could, you could do it, you know, just fill out your tax return and then check the box how many people are in your house, you know. It's very easy to, to do it that way. So the Almighty is telling us that, yes, we always have that essential connection, and it, that connection is never lost, as indicated by the fact that we have this commandment of counting our, the Jewish people every year. Now we do it. We do it before Purim, and it's commemorative of the time when they did it in the temple because the money was used for sacrifices. We're not using sacrifices anymore. 
brings us to the month of Adar, this month, which we're starting Wednesday, which will go for 30 days and then right in the smack dab in the middle of it on March the 6th will be Purim. And we'll talk about Purim more later in the month. Mishinichnas Adar Marbin Basimcha. That's what people think. When when we increase in happiness, when Adar begins, and the expression is Simcha Paritz Geder, Simcha breaks through joy, happiness, breaks through all boundaries. A happy person can accomplish anything. So now, what is it that we have? We have this essential connection, which never dissipates. How, but maybe you don't see it. The reason is, is it's because our connection to God, just like the Jewish people, is also in Gullus. It's covered over by a body, by animal desires. But if a person is happy just knowing that they have that connection, that will allow this connection, which is like a pilot light, to flare up, to become great. To be, as it says at the end of the Megillah, after the Jews, the book of Esther, after the Jews had been faced with annihilation, that for the Jews there was light and there was happiness and there was preciousness and dearness. And that is where we're going to because ultimately the ultimate happiness is when we get those pilot lights all lit up and Mashiach comes. The Jewish Hour has been on air now 29, 28 years. We're coming up on our 29th year. And we thank you for doing that. And if you'd like to hear past episodes of the Jewish Hour, it'd be cool if we had like episodes from like 1994 on them. <laughs> Most of them wouldn't. <laughs> the music would sound like, oh, that's an old song, which was, it was new when I was playing them. And uh, that interview, oh, we talked about what? So a lot of it would not be relevant to today. I have, uh, sitting in my basement, I have boxes and boxes of tapes that uh, from the Jewish Hour, which I'm saving for somebody to, I don't know, throw out after I hit 120. Don't know what's going to happen with those boxes and boxes of tapes, but they're all sitting there in a floodproof container. So... Um, who knows? But uh, there's still there's plenty on RabbiFinman.com. If you want to hear past episodes of the Jewish Hour, go to RabbiFinman.com. Listen to the archived editions of the show. There's also ways in which we convey Judaism through classes, through other media besides radio, all up on RabbiFinman.com. There's also the very important donation page. The Jewish Hour has been on air for 29 years simply because... People like you, who enjoy listening to the show, have sent in a donation. A donation, one donation, ten donations, whatever it is that you happen to send. Every donation that a person sends definitely helps because it helps keep this show viable. And that's for sure. If you're listening all this way, almost an hour into the show, you're listening. So it's uh, be a good thing for you to... Uh, to contribute. So go to RabbiFinman.com, go to the donations page, 
Um, I can promise you all kinds of things, but one thing I can for sure promise you that if we keep the Jewish hour going, then you'll get to listen to it for some more. For sure, it's a tax-deductible donation. People are thinking about taxes. It's a little late to declare it on your 2022 taxes, but listen, 2023 is going to have taxes too. So do it. God will appreciate it. The IRS will appreciate it. I'll appreciate it. You'll appreciate it. So do something that everybody appreciates. Make a donation to the Jewish Hour. The story involves the Rebbe's wife, Rebbe Sinchai Moshkishnirson, whose uh, anniversary of her passing was commemorated last week. And I'm telling this story because it has a relationship with Purim. This story, she at various times during her life living in New York, she had various people who worked in her house as aides. I couldn't call them servants. Um, they're people who helped out around the house. It took care of, you know, stuff. I mean, so like everybody else, she's a uh, an older woman. She was not going to clean house, so she had cleaning help. So, but um, she didn't answer the door either, per se. So she had somebody answering the door. There was always somebody there. Or if there was nobody there, then the door didn't get answered. So one of the people that did this back in 1970 was Heimbor Halberstam, who still lives in Crown Heights. And you can call up and corroborate this story with him. Halberstam is spelled H-A-L-B-E-R-Stam. Uh, uh, so um, it was Purim. On Purim, one of the things we do is we give gifts of food to a friend and neighbor. The idea that everybody should make sure that they have, everybody likes getting gifts. If you get a gift, that makes everybody ha- that makes the person happy. And Purim is supposed to be happy. And Jews, you know how we are, food is the greatest comfort that we have. Everything revolves around food. We call it gastro-Judaism. So now being that the Rebbe was a Rebbe, so people would like to impress this religious leader. And so they were bringing all kinds of stuff. The tables were filled with elaborate baskets. Now, in the Rebbe's household, there was just the Rebbe and the Rebbe's wife. And there is no way that they were going to be able to eat all of this stuff so what happened to all of this stuff? They gave it away. And usually most of it wound up. I remember being in uh, 770 the day after Purim and just like seeing on the table an elaborate smorgasbord of fruit and cake and uh, various forms of drink. And what's else this? Is this? This is from the Rebbe's house. The Rebbe didn't want it. So, so in 1970... There was a yeshiva student who didn't have much money. But he wanted also to give to the Rebbe. So he had a plain brown paper bag with an orange. And I believe it was either a candy bar or a bottle, a can of soda. Pop, as you might call it, in this part of the world. And he presented it to Chaim Baruch Halbushtan. And said, this is his Meshalach. He wants to give Meshalach Manas to the Rebbe. And so Chaim Baruch said, thank you very much. He put it on the table right next to these big, elaborate, fancy packages. The Rebbe every once in a while, what would she do is she would um, go take a look at the table every once in a while. She'd take out the card, and the cards she held onto, those were, that's what meant something to her. The fact that people were thinking of her really much touched her. And she saw this, this, uh, this bag. And she said, what's this? And she said, a, he said, a student 
wanted to give Shalach Manas. He said he didn't have much money, but he wanted to present the Rabbi, the Rebbe and the Rebbitzin. That year, when they gave everything away, they gave away everything except for that one little bag with the orange and the can of pop. And it says that the Rebbe ate his meal, his festive meal that day, with an orange and a can of pop on the table. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you have a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back next week. Take care.